to be very candid with you this morning, I really struggled this week with what to say and how to approach this message in the aftermath of the horrific violence that has visited our country just over the past two weeks. You know, Buffalo, 10 people gunned down in a hate crime. Laguna Woods, California, church shooting, church shooting. Doctor lost his life subduing the shooter. Here in our town, a student was killed in a fight on Tuesday night just up the street. And then Uvalde, Texas, 19 children and two teachers. As a country, we cannot seem to step up to the most fundamental responsibility of any country, the protection of our children. Gun violence has now surpassed automobile accidents as the leading cause of death of children in our country. Yes, this is a political problem, but it is far greater than that. It is a moral problem. By now, I sense we're all familiar with the Christian perspective on these events. Our God absolutely hates this kind of evil violence. God does not cause this kind of evil. We're in a series based on the book of James, and it is James that reminds us of this truth in the opening verses of the letter. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. We know that God allows evil because God gave us the freedom to choose to love and obey him or to choose rebellion. We know and we affirm and we confess after events like Buffalo and Uvalde that God is close, that God is near, that God will heal the pain and stand with the brokenhearted. We know that God will bring justice to evildoers and that God in his infinite wisdom and justice will not let this kind of evil stand. We also know that God will hold us accountable for our actions or inactions. That God will hold us accountable for what we do or don't do to prevent this kind of evil in our world. As Christians, God calls each one of us to do our part to spread his goodness, his love, his mercy, and to stand against this kind of violence. And this is where I want us to spend some time today. I believe it is where God would have us dwell this morning with the question, what about us? Where do we fit into these dramas that seem to be playing out almost on a weekly basis in our nation? What is our responsibility? What is our call to action? I seriously considered stepping away from this text this week, the text that I planned over a year ago for today. But the more I reflected, the more I prayed, the more I read the text, I realized that our scheduled text has a word for us today. So let me invite you to turn to launch your Bibles to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. By now in this series, we've learned that that James is addressing a church that is just riddled with quarrels and division 
over matters such as false teachings, over favoritism for the wealthy, over accommodating to the values and the attitudes of the Roman Empire rather than the values and attitudes of the kingdom of God. So James is writing a church that is, quite frankly, a hot mess would be uh, a good way to say that. So chapter 4, verse 1, he writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is God's word today for God's people. The big idea here in this passage is found in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves then to God. Karl Barth, the 20, renowned 20th century theologian, is famous for saying to ministers, we should preach with the Bible in one hand and with the newspaper in the other. We should preach with the Bible in one hand and with the newspaper in the other. In other words, when events like Buffalo and Udalve and Parkland and Columbine and Sandy Hook and on and on and on and on and on, Christians should turn to God's Word for their response. We should not first turn to this news channel or that news channel. We should not first turn to this politician or that politician. We should not first turn to this special interest group or that special interest group. There is a time and a subordinating place for those voices. We should first submit our response as God's people to God's Word. So let's hold the Bible in one hand this morning and the newspaper in the other, and let's take a look at James's big idea. Submit yourselves then first to God. Submit your desires. James tells his readers that all their division, all their fights, all their quarrels come from their desires. Again, back in chapter 1, James established this idea that as frail, sinful human beings, that we are, let me read it again, dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You know, it's interesting here. James uses biological terms, reproductive terms, like conceives and gives birth. Most of the time when we think about these terms, we think about life. But sin spreads 
by reproducing in our lives, and it leads to death. That's the danger of cancer cells, is it not? They reproduce, and unless they are stopped, they lead to death. So James tells his readers that their desires lead them to covet, which leads them to quarrel and fight and even kill. Now, some scholars suggest that kill here is a metaphor for their arguing and fighting. Others suggest that James is using it literally. Either way, wayward evil desires lead to disruption and sin, which ultimately leads in death. He even says when they pray, They are praying with selfish motives because they pray with selfish desires. You know, our desires are shaped by so many different influences in our journey, aren't they? Some are shaped by a desire for recognition and achievement. Some are shaped by pain and emotional wounds. Some are shaped by our selfish nature. And of course, some are shaped by the evil one. It is interesting. God wired us to have desires. The idea of desire is not inherently wrong. Desires go wrong when they're misguided and malformed instead of being shaped by the Spirit of God. We may never know the desires of the shooter in Uvalde. We don't know how much his desire to use a weapon of war on his grandmother and elementary school kids was shaped by wounds and pain and mental illness. We do know that he was a loner. We do know he was an outcast in school. We do know he was bullied. We do know he uh, was outcast and marginalized. None of these are excuses. They do lay the groundwork for his evil desires to which he submitted. And we know the gunman in Buffalo was filled with hatred and racism, an evil desire for superiority. These events and many others give validity to the warning from James. Evil desires give birth to sin, which leads to death. Let's each ask ourselves this morning, from a broader perspective, do you submit your desires to God? The Greek word for submit means to arrange under. Have you arranged your desires under the influence and power of God? Have you arranged your desires under the foot of the cross? It is on the cross that the power of evil was once and for all defeated. It takes that kind of cosmic power in our lives to reshape and to reform the desires of our heart. Put another way, are you submitting your desires to the will and to the ways of God? When you consider your response to the events of last week, who or what is shaping your response? Are you holding your response up to the will of God? Some may desire to do nothing, to throw your hands up in frustration and say, hey, there's nothing I can do. Ask yourself, is it God's will for your life to do nothing? Some may get angry. This is a frustrating issue that causes a great deal of anger, doesn't it? The U.S. is the only country with this issue on this scale. 
I believe it was Officer Devin who shared with me this morning that the next country has like eight. We have hundreds of these. It's frustrating to say the least. Is it God's will for you to stew in your frustration and spend all your energy on social media? Or is it God's will for you to get involved and to take action? Attend civic conversations. Consider the voting records of your representatives on these issues. Are you submitting your desire for your response to these issues to God? Start by submitting your desires to the will of God on this issue and every issue. Then we are to submit our allegiance. In verses 4 through 6, James calls them out for not being loyal to God. In the Bible, our relationship with God is often compared to the marriage relationship. This is why James calls them adulterous. He's not saying they are all committing the sin of adultery, though some may be. He is saying they are being adulterous in their relationship to God. They claim they are married to God as his people, and yet they're having an affair with the world. N.T. Wright wrote, By the world, he means the way the world behaves, the pattern of life, the underlying implied story, the things people want, expect, long for, and dream, dream of that drive them to behave the way they do. Without an exclusive intentional commitment to a relationship to God in Christ, we will simply drift along. And we will absorb the ways of the world. We can't be duly aligned as God's people. We can't split our allegiance and be part-time. We can't be undercover Christians. God expects our full allegiance and faithfulness to Him above all things. And hear this good news today. God wants to be in an exclusive relationship with you. God wants all of your heart. Because God gives you all of his. James writes, this is a beautiful passage that gets overlooked in this text. James writes that God jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. We hear the term that God is jealous and we wonder, well, I, I thought jealousy was wrong. I didn't think we we're supposed to be jealous. No, it is not wrong to be jealous for that which is rightfully yours. It is not wrong to be jealous for the affections of your spouse. It is not wrong to be jealous for the well-being and influence over your child. It is not wrong for God to be jealous for your heart when you offer it to him in covenant relationship. You are his and he is yours. Your allegiance. Submit your allegiance to God. As you consider your response to the events of the past week, search your heart. Where is your ultimate allegiance? Is it with one political party over another? Is it with an apathetic attitude or one of action? Is it with the concept of individual freedoms or community responsibility? When it comes to the gun debate in our country, the issue of the Second Amendment right to bear arms is almost always at the center of the conversation. There's a great debate over what it really means. I don't have the form or expertise to get into it here. By the way, I believe most gun owners are incredibly responsible. And from what I read this past week, most law-abiding gun owners believe that greater measures need to be taken to restrict access to these weapons of war. But the question for Christians, when it comes to our freedoms and our rights, 
is not what are our freedoms and rights. That's not the question for God's people. For the Christian, our great question, which is born out of allegiance to God, is how does God want us to love our neighbor? That's the first question. There are many freedoms we submit that we give up in order to obey God's command to love our neighbor as we would love ourselves. Christians just always, always clamoring for this right or that right. And don't get me wrong, I know there are inalienable rights that are even above this country, like the freedom to worship. Nobody can ever squelch your freedom to worship. Just ask John McCain, who spent years in a prison cell, how they worship. Nobody can ever take that away from you. Ask anybody in communist China how they worship, Christians worship. They can't take that away from them. I know there are certain inalienable rights like that that are not subject to one country over another. But when it comes to those other lower freedoms and rights, we have to submit those as God's people to what does it mean to love our neighbor? Holy Scripture never says love your neighbor unless it compromises your rights. There's no dot, dot, dot on the end of that one. I've not seen it, not found it. As you consider your response, consider your allegiance. Is God pleased with your response? Does your response flow out of your ultimate allegiance to Him or does it flow from a friendship, an affair with the world? Submit your soul. Verses 7 through 10 read like a recipe for soul care. Again, Wright said this passage sounds like a good six months of spiritual direction or content for spiritual retreat. The concept of the soul is wonderfully woven through the Old Testament and the New Testament. We don't spend enough time talking about the soul. First Chronicles 22:19 in preparations of building of the temple uh, reads like this, now devote your heart and soul to seeking the Lord your God. Isaiah 26, 9, my soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. Our Lord in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? The soul is defined in the Bible as the seat of all feelings, desires, and aversions. It is regarded as moral, being designed for eternity. It differs from the body and is not dissolved by death. It takes care and concern. It needs rest and refreshment and renewal and restoration. It needs to be nourished and graced and shaped by God. Your soul will be your travel companion for all your days into all eternity. We ask God, to save our souls. We ask him to have mercy on our souls. In a sense, the soul represents the summation of all that is important to you. And listen to James's recipe for soul care. Submit to God. Lift all of your life to God. Allow God to heal you, shape you, challenge you, convict you. Resist the devil. I love this promise. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
I think as Christians, we at times get trapped into thinking the devil has more power. No. Scripture tells us that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Scripture tells us no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And when you're tempted, God will give you a way to stand up from it. Resist the devil. The devil will run away. Draw near. In the context of James, the idea of drawing near was reminiscent of going to the temple and offering and presenting your sacrifice to God. And the temple was that image of God dwelling with His people as we draw near to God, as we offer our lives as a living sacrifice to God. God draws near to us. God wants to be near to you. Mourn your sin. Change your laughter into mourning. Joy into gloom, James writes. And practice repentance. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. Now we know that it is God that, that, that cleanses and purifies us. So James here is tapping this idea that we present ourselves to God here in confession and our desires to turn from sin and walk in repentance. And as we humble ourselves and submit all of who we are, then God lifts us up. So when it comes to your response to this issue, how do you see this in light of the care of your soul? When you think about the totality of your life, what you're all about, the sum total of your values and attitudes, experiences, beliefs, and convictions, all of these things to which we will give an account before God. Ask God to guide you in such a way that your soul and that your conscience, who you are before God, is pleasing and acceptable in His sight. This is a moral issue that needs to be dealt with on all levels in our country. I know it needs to be dealt with politically. I know that. It's a moral issue. As your pastor, I encourage you to wrestle the issue and take a stand. I've repeated to as many people that were here this past week, we all need to do the most that we can on this issue. Some of us may have the ability to do even more than others, but we all need to do the most that we can. I want you to know where I stand on this issue. There have been several ideas floating around this week. And there will be several more. Option A, some say we need greater restrictions on the federal level to ban these assault weapons or to put age limits on them. That an 18-year-old who is not even old enough to rent a car or buy a beer should be able to buy a weapon of war. I mean, think about it. The adult male brain is not fully formed until around 25. We're allowing males with partially formed brains to run around with assault weapon and enough ammo for a day on the battlefield. Yes, we have 18-year-olds in our military, but I've been in the military. When weapons are assigned, they are under tight control in a group environment with massive oversight and accountability. That argument doesn't hunt. Option B, some say we need to fortify our schools more. That children should wear bulletproof backpacks, that there should be walls and barbed fences around our schools. Option C, some say we need to have beefed up background checks, mental health checks and all that. Have at least a 30-day waiting period to buy an assault weapon and maybe even a home visit. My goodness, you have to have a home visit in some places to adopt a cat. I'm sure there are other options, and I'm sure there will be. 
my personal view. And it's my personal view. It's not the view of this church making a statement. It's my personal view. And know that I'm open to the Lord shaping and challenging me, convicting me under the Holy Spirit if I'm wrong. Of all the options, I say all the above. I say do whatever it takes. I say do whatever it takes to protect our children, to protect our worshipers, to protect our seniors buying groceries, to protect country music fans at concerts in Vegas. Do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. We all know that we have a serious problem in our country. We all know that we should be free to go to school without this kind of fear and that grandmothers should be able to go to the grocery store and not leave it in a body bag. We all know that something needs to change. The question for us today is God's people. As his redeemed, rescued representatives in this world is how does God want us to respond? What would God have us to do? How does God want us to think and act? That is the question we must consider in the days ahead. Submit yourselves then to God. Submit your desires. Submit your allegiance. Submit the care of your soul. If you do, trust me, I promise you, God will not lead you wrong. Amen. Let's join in prayer together. Lord God, we lift all this up to you. We know that you desire to be the God of our desires. That you want our hearts to be longing, panting for you. And we know, oh God, when our desires are aligned with you, you tell us that you will give us water that will never run dry. You tell us that you will never leave us or forsake us. You tell us that you will fill us up. God, we know that, that you demand that we submit our allegiance to you. That you require first place. Or that you told us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is love your neighbors yourself. That you desire our allegiance, God. And Lord, you are the lover of our souls. You are our shepherd. You nurture them and you care for them. And so God, may we hear this word today that we're to nurture ours and care for ours. And hold them up to you for your care, for your shaping. Lord, you've given each one of us the time in which we live. As your redeemed and rescued representatives in this world, you have called us to this place in this time. And so, Lord, our country is facing a very, very challenging problem. 
And I don't know anyone that would ever claim to have all the answers. But we know you do. And so as your people, hear us call out to you and to cry out to you for help, for wisdom, for comfort, and for guidance. Help each one of us to submit all of who we are to you. And as you work, as you heal, as you lead us to do that which you would have us do, we will honor you and praise you and Lord, give you all the credit for giving us the leadership and direction and the guidance that we need. We turn to you, our God, in Jesus' name. Amen.